Well, good morning. I'm going to grab your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 49. And being that we are in the season of Advent and celebrating the gift of Jesus, I want to remind you that that black Bible in the chair that you're sitting in, if you don't own a Bible that you can read at your home, that is a gift from this church to you. Take it, read it, study it, uh, listen carefully to what it says. Uh, We'd love to put God's word in your hand if you don't have it. Genesis 49 is found on page 42 of that black Bible, if you're looking at that. And I encourage you to keep your Bible open as we read God's word together. I want you to keep your Bible open, um, but I want you to keep your finger in your Bible, but also pull out your bulletin and look at the first song, the lyrics of the first song that we sang this morning, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. When we sing O Come, O Come, it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a song of longing. I don't know if you noticed that before. It's not, it, it is a celebratory song, but it's also a song of, of longing. Emmanuel is the name for Jesus, that means God with us, and the song starts out with this urgent plea, first words, O come, O come, Emmanuel, it's this song of longing and and request for God to come be with us. Why? Why is there this urgent plea? Well, according to verse 1 of this song, because God's people are in mourning in lonely exile. There's loneliness, there's mourning, there's exile. And so we cry, oh, come. Or you go to verse two, it starts the same way. Oh, come, thou dayspring from on high. Again, that word dayspring is just another name for Jesus. It's, it's referring to him as the light of the world that shines in the darkness. And so there's this urgent plea for the light. Oh, come, why? Due to the gloomy clouds of night, death, sin, and darkness. Or one more verse, we see the urgent plea in verse five. We sing, O come, please, O come, thou king of nations. Why do we sing this? Well, verse five says, to bring an end to all our suffering, pain, and sorrow. So it's a song of rejoicing, but it's also a song of urgent longing. It's a, it's a song that essentially is a prayer. It's a song of us waiting together for God's salvation. We need songs like this because waiting is not fun. Waiting's hard. Waiting under the burden of darkness and suffering and pain that we go through this side of heaven can leave us weary. Perhaps weariness describes where you are at this morning. Life gets busy. Problems at work, problems at home, problems in school, pile up faster than you can respond to, and before long, you are overwhelmed. And in that sense of being overwhelmed, weariness chips away at our hope. You may read your Bible, you may pray, you may come to church and sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, but all the while, if you're honest, there is a dark cynicism lurking in the shadows. And the difficulty of being weary in this sin-sick world leaves you asking, where, where is God? Does, does all of this really make a difference? I'm praying, I'm reading, I'm singing, but will God actually do something? Unchecked, this cynicism can hollow out our faith such that we go through the motions of church and Bible reading and fellowship and prayer. But when we're honest with ourselves, we're hoping in something other than God. Or for others, the burden and the tiredness that comes from being weary is just too much. And they walk away from God. So the question I want us to consider this morning in light of Genesis 49 is this. How can we go from being hopeless to hopeful? How can we 
not only sing the longing of verse 1 and 2 and 5, Oh, come! This world is groaning. This world is sick and dark and we're in lonely exile. Come! How can we not only sing that part of the song, but also come to sing the refrain? Rejoice! Rejoice! Emmanuel shall come again with us to dwell. If you're in need of hope, and we need to find this hope in a weary world, let's turn to Genesis 49 together. Let me begin by reading the text to us. Genesis 49, starting in verse 1. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel, or my glory not be, jo- be not joined to their company. For in anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on your neck of of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the people's. Binding his fowl on the vine and the donkey's colt on the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea and shall become a haven for ships and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. I wait for your salvation. O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely, yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that, and that crouches beneath, blessing of the breast and of the womb, the blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who has set apart from his, who set apart was from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with a blessing suitable to him. This is God's word. And notice, I want us to notice here in verse one, just kind of set the scene, Jacob tells his sons what shall happen to you in the days to come. So Jacob is actually speaking here as a prophet of God, speaking the word of God to his 12 sons. But Jacob gathers his 12 sons before he dies, he's on his deathbed, in order to bless them. 
That idea of blessing actually bookends our passage in Genesis 49. And what's interesting is that in the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, known as the Pentateuch, the phrase, in the days to come, that phrase, in the days to come, always refers to God's plan to deliver his people and to restore his blessing that was lost because of sin. You remember, this is how the book of Genesis began, right? He creates Adam and Eve in his image, and then in chapter 1, verse 28, he says, and God blessed them. One of the first things he does to Adam and Eve, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. The blessing that we see in Genesis 1.28 that Genesis is about is not necessarily wealth, health, and prosperity as we understand it today. The blessing is chiefly about being in a right relationship with God. It's knowing God. It's, it's being his friend. It's being his child and then all the blessings that come from that afterward. And so in the very beginning, in Genesis 1 and 2, when there was no sin, God blesses Adam and Eve, and it was paradise. Problem is, by Genesis 3, they rebel against God, they throw off God's rule over them, and they were banished from paradise, banished from the Garden of Eden, where they once enjoyed God's unhindered presence, and the blessing was lost. Sin. Sin is why we groan in this world. Sin left the world weary with chaos and confusion and conflict and misery and groaning. But God's heart to bless his people never changed. And God's plan to bless his people never changed. Sin did not derail his plan to bless his people. That's really what Genesis as a whole is about. It's why this sermon series is titled From Creation to New Creation. After Adam and Eve's rebellion led to ruin, God very early in Genesis 3 verse 15 said he promised that from the seed or the offspring of the woman, he would raise up one who would crush the head of the serpent. And this one, this Messiah, this Savior, from the offspring of the woman would make things right. So we see this glimmer of hope in the very beginning of Genesis 3. And so since then, since God's promise in Genesis 3.15, as we've walked through Genesis, we've been tracing the seed of the woman with hope and with longing. Is this the one? Is this the one? Is this the Messiah, who the, who the, the, seed, well, the seed that will bring the blessing? From Adam to Seth, from Seth to Noah, from Noah to Abraham in Genesis 12. We've been tracing this seed of promise. And then in Genesis 12, we see something new where God promises Abraham, I will bless you and I'm gonna make you a blessing so that in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God's plan was to restore the blessing that was ruined by sin. And his plan was to do it through Abraham's offspring. Okay, so now we have more light. Now we have more knowledge after Genesis 12. So from Genesis 12, now we know it's going to come through Abraham's family. So the the spotlight's on his family. And we've been walking with his family from Abraham to Isaac, from Isaac to Jacob. And then Jacob now in chapter 49 is passing on this promise to his 12 sons. So with that in mind, the first thing I want us to see in Genesis 49 is this. If you're taking notes, first thing I want us to see is this. Point number one, blessed are those who trust God's word. Blessed are those who trust God's word. I don't really have a a verse marker for you. It's all of chapter 49, okay? So we're just going to work through the text together. The, The bookends of blessing in verse one And then in verse 28, we see that bookend of blessing leads us to compare two groups within Jacob's family, okay? 
This is, the, the bookends is showing us how to read chapter 49. This is, what, this is what this is about. This is about God's blessing his people. And so with the, with the bookends, we're gonna, follow, we're gonna look at these two different groups of people within Jacob's family. In the first group, we can put Simeon, Levi, and Reuben. Group one is the wicked. It starts well for Reuben, the firstborn, in verse three. You'll notice Jacob says to him, he was preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Looks like pretty good for for Reuben. That he was preeminent means that he excelled. He excelled in power and in dignity. He was, as the firstborn, he was the first in line in the family. As the firstborn, he was, he, he was going to inherit the right to be in charge of the family, the family leader. He would have receive a double portion of the inheritance, and he would be in charge of the family. But Reuben got frustrated with the way that Jacob was doing things. He got tired. Reuben got tired of waiting his turn to lead the family. And so Reuben, if you'll remember, in chapter 35, Reuben grabbed the steering wheel of the family by sleeping with Bilhah, Jacob's wife. And we, we, we saw how that was not just a, a moment of, of passion, that was a political move in chapter 35. That was a power grab. That was, that was Reuben declaring, I want what I want when I want it, and I am done waiting. And so I'm in charge now. That's what that act of sleeping with Bilhah was saying. And so for a large part, ever since that happened in Genesis 35, Jacob has kind of been largely silent about what Reuben did, but now he's not silent anymore. Because of his treason against Jacob, Reuben forfeited his rights as the firstborn and became, as verse four says, unstable, as water. That's a vivid picture. Water, water takes the shape of the container that's in, right? You look at this water, it looks like a water bottle. Why? Because it's in the container of a water bottle. Water takes the shape of the container it's in. So imagine a cup of water. If, if the glass disappears, what happens to the water? It collapses, it, it spills, it, it leaves a mess. That's what he's saying. When we push God, the glass that holds our life together, when we push God to the margin and put ourself in charge to do what we want, when we want, we, like Reuben, become unstable as water. Water without a glass. Well, after Reuben, Jacob then turns to Simeon and Levi in verses five through seven. And he highlights their violence their anger, their out-of-control wrath. And again, we, it helps to kind of remember where we're coming from because uh, this, this, is what, this is reaching back to what happened in Genesis 34. After their sister Dinah was assaulted horribly in chapter 34, Simeon and Levi wanted justice, and rightly so. But they weren't willing to wait on God for justice. And unwilling to wait on God and do it God's way, they took matters into their own hands. They wanted something so badly that their desires, their feelings took control of them rather than having God in control of their lives. And with their desires in control of them, hatred created a blind rage that led them to massacre an entire city, many of them who had nothing to do with what happened to Dinah. And so rather than finding the justice that they were longing for, they became unjust. And so as a result, Jacob now speaks to Simeon and Levi and he refuses to come into their counsel, verse six. And he warns them that God would scatter their tribes in Israel. So group one is the wicked. That's kind of one of the bookends that we see in in Genesis 49. But then group two in group two, we find largely Joseph. So group two would be referred to the, the righteous. The righteous. Group one is the wicked. Group two is the righteous. Well, what was, life, what was life like for Joseph in Egypt? Well, verse 23 tells us what life was like for him. The archers attacked him 
shot at him and harassed him severely. We can think of his brothers betraying him, selling him into slavery, being falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, suffering in prison. That, verse 23, describes describes that experience. In terms of his circumstances, Joseph was in a desert wasteland, attacked, shot at, severely harassed. We wouldn't wish that on anybody, but that was his life. And given, him, given Joseph's circumstances, we expect after all of this, what happened to him, we expect him to be weary, hopeless, bitter, ready to throw in the towel, right? But notice how Jacob describes Joseph in verse 22. Verse 22, Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. In other words, he's like, he's like a tree. That's what a bough is, the branches of a tree, firmly planted by streams of water. So you have the first group, you have the wicked who are unstable and scattered, but in contrast with the second group, the righteous. They may have a difficult, painful life, a desert wasteland of circumstances, but they, verse 24, remain unmoved. They are, like Joseph, fruitful in a desert. Do you want that type of life, church? Do you want to be able to be fruitful in a desert? Me? Sign me up. How how does this happen? How did Joseph thrive? How was he able to be fruitful in a desert wasteland? Well, again, verse 24 tells us. We don't have to guess. Verse 24, his arms were made agile. How? By the hands of of the mighty one of Jacob, by God. Rather than try to put himself in the place of God like Reuben and Simeon and Levi did in their desire, emotion-controlled lives, Joseph said, no, I'm gonna trust God. This is hard, but I'm gonna trust God. In fact, I'm gonna rely on God to strengthen me and keep me going even in the desert wasteland. God must strengthen us. Amen. But how does God do this? Yes, God strengthens us. Strengthen us, God. But how does he do this? Well, our scripture reading this morning was from Psalm 1. Pull out your bulletin again. We're going to put your bulletin to work this morning. Page 4. Notice in Psalm 1 of page, page 4 your bulletin. Psalm 1 is going to contrast two groups, the righteous and the wicked. The righteous how does he describe the righteous? Is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. Now just pause. Does that sound familiar to Genesis 49? And what God said through Jacob to Joseph? Or in contrast, in Psalm 1, we have the wicked. They're not like the tree. They're like the chaff. They're like the kernel of your popcorn that when you throw it up in the wind, the, the kernel of grain falls to the ground, but the chaff, the, the husk, is so light, it's, it goes wherever the wind pushes it. It's a slave of the circumstances. If the wind drives it east, it goes east. If the wind's going west, it goes west. The wicked are like chaff that the wind drives away, or we might say like the wind scatters scatters as Simeon and Levi's tribe would be scattered. The righteous and the wicked, the fruitful bough and the scattered chaff. How does God transform the righteous like Joseph and turn somebody like Joseph into a fruitful tree? Well, Psalm 1 provides the answer. Verse 1 of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Then skip down to verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. See what he's saying? The psalmist is saying that God strengthens the weary and God transforms us from hopeless saints to hope-filled saints, by his word, by his law, by the Bible. 
And that idea that we see in Psalm 1 includes something, if we're going to read God's word, that includes something to avoid and something to pursue. When, when life knocks us down, when life leaves us weary, the path of the wicked is tempting because it's easy and it's wide. The path of the wicked means that we can, we can fit in with the world. The path of the wicked means that we can fly under the radar and not face the persecution of the world for being Christ-like. It, it means the way the wicked promises that we can get ahead. The way the wicked promises that we can hear the applause and approval of this world that we're so desperate to hear. The way the world promises immediate pleasure you don't have to wait for. The way of the wicked is a shortcut for those who are tired of waiting for God. But the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Therefore, we must avoid the counsel of the wicked, the way of sinners, and the seat of scoffers. We avoid the counsel of the wicked. Why? Not just because we are about avoiding certain things. We avoid, we avoid the counsel of the wicked so that we can pursue God and we can hear his voice in the pages of Scripture. So there's something we avoid, there's something we pursue. We pursue, we pursue God and his voice in the pages of Scripture. Now, listen, when we're tired and weary, when we're beat up and we're, we're, we're weary of waiting on God, reading his word may be the last thing that you want to do. I get that. I feel that way at times. But friends, isn't it true that it's often when we don't want to read the Bible that it's then that we often need it the most? The psalmist prays in Psalm 119, my soul is weary with sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Friends, this is why we gather. It's why you show up and put your seat in this chair and, and, and we gather each Sunday like God commands us to in Hebrews 10. Do you notice that Jacob says a similar thing in verse 1? Gather yourselves together, verse one. Verse two, assemble and listen. And then he gives God's word, this prophetic word. We do the same thing every Sunday. We assemble together each Sunday. And sometimes, if we're honest, we kind of limp into the church building. Tired, weary, I'm not sure I wanna be here today. But then we read God's word. And we sing God's word. We pray God's word. We preach God's word. We see God's word in the baptisms and the Lord's Supper. And we do this as a gathered church because we believe that faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of God. Friend, if you are in a season of weariness, if you're ready to throw in the towel, where are you looking for strength? Where are you looking for life? One of the ways that we minister to each other as a church family is not only to take our directory and pray through our directory, pray for each other throughout the week, but we also minister to each other throughout the week by encouraging each other with God's word on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, all the way to Saturday, and on Sunday. So I want my, my assignment for you is I want you to think of ways that you can minister to others with God's word this week. Be creative, whether it's a phone call, a text, a letter, a visit, what are ways that you might do that this week? Who are a few people that you need to encourage in this church family with the life-giving word of God? Don't just hear me say that. I want you to think of a name or two this morning and jot that name down, and that's who you're gonna reach out to this week. It could be a, a five-minute phone call. It could be you sharing what you read in the Bible that morning, but you're gonna encourage them with God's word and pray with them. Because when our souls are sick with sorrow, God strengthens us with his word. God's, God's word strengthens. God's word gives life. But there's a catch. Psalm 1 is clear. The one who's blessed, the one who becomes a fruitful tree, is one whose delight is in the law of the Lord. It's not just that we read God's word if we want to become like that fruitful tree, we must delight in the law of God. Now, God's law is good and holy and righteous. There's nothing wrong with God's law. The problem's in our heart. 
God's law is good. And so God's law, when we read it, shows us the goodness of God and how we are called to live. But God's law, according to Romans 3, verse 20, God's law is like a mirror that also shows us our sin. We read the law and it exposes our greed, our partiality, our self-centeredness, our lust, our pride, our caustic tongue, our envy, our gossip. Oh, now I'm in trouble. God's blessing comes to those who delight in his law. So how can we delight in something that rightly condemns us? You see the problem that we're in? If the only way for us to be the fruitful tree is to delight in his law, how can we delight in something that condemns us? So yes, the first point is, blessed are those who trust in God's word, amen. But we also need to hear Jacob's words to Judah at this point, which leads us to point number two of the sermon. Only two points. Point number two is this. Blessed are those who trust God's king. Blessed are those who trust God's king. So let's, let's zero in at the, at the heart of Genesis 49. I think it's in Jacob's blessing to Judah. Let's look at that blessing to Judah starting in verse 8. Jacob says in verse 8, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So really, again, the blessing that Jacob has for Judah, I think, is the heart of Genesis 49. Because what he's saying is that in days to come, Judah's brothers, the tribes, the other tribes, will bow down to the tribe of Judah. We see that in verse 8. In other words, Jacob is describing Judah in royal terms. He is like a lion who's, vic- who's victorious with his hands upon the neck of his enemies. You don't mess with a lion who's a king. What Jacob is saying is a prophecy. He's saying that from Judah's tribe will come a king. God will establish the monarchy in Israel First of all, in King David. And who's King David? Which, which tribe is King David from? Judah. He will establish the monarchy first in King David, a descendant of Judah. But if you've read 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, you'll know that David doesn't fulfill this perfectly. David is not the end game. David is only a signpost pointing forward to a better future king. Do you notice that in verse 10? There's a hint of that in verse 10. We're told that the ruler's staff, the king's staff, would continue in Judah how long? Until tribute comes to him. Now, what does that mean? Perhaps a better translation of verse 10 is in the footnote of the ESV Bible there that you're looking at. It could read, verse 10 could read, the ruler's staff will continue in the tribe of Judah until he comes to whom it belongs. In other words, when he comes to whom the scepter really belongs, he will not only be the king of Israel, he will be king of the entire world. Verse 10, to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Not one little tribe, not one little plot of land in the Middle East. No, all the peoples All the nations, the entire world will be under his rule. If you watch a Formula One race, when the race is done, what what does the victor do? He takes a victory lap. Formula One victory lap around the racetrack. As a Formula One race driver celebrates a victory lap, verse 11 tells us of a donkey's colt that this future king would ride upon, victorious and triumphant. 
Jacob speaks of it here. Zechariah 9, verse 9, prophesies about it. His rule, this king, this future king's rule would be unrivaled. This future king, would, his, his rule would be so awesome that he would usher in an age of prosperity the world has not known. It would be so prosperous, he'll wash his clothes in wine. The one who rode on a donkey into Jerusalem as a king. The one whom David pointed forward to as a signpost. The king who would inherit all the nations to rule is Jesus. That's what this text is about. When Jesus was born, the angel Gabriel said, the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, who's of the tribe of Judah. And he, Jesus, will reign over the house of Jacob, not just for 10 years, 20 years, not one term limit. No, he will reign forever. And not just over one little province. Of his kingdom, there will be no end. That's that's what was announced when Jesus was born. So friends, listen, when we talk to people, when we share the gospel today, when we do evangelism, when we tell people about Jesus, listen, we're not trying to gather enough votes in the hopes that maybe Jesus will take office one day if we can just get enough people to like Jesus and vote for him. It doesn't work that way. We're not, there's no voting here. He's declaring Jesus is king right now. He is king of kings. Jesus said before he ascended into heaven, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me now. He's on the throne. So please do not think of Jesus as insecure or needy. Jesus is not like Santa Claus, worried that his sleigh will not, ride, will, not, will not fly if enough people don't believe in him. That's not Jesus. We are not doing him a favor by believing in him. We're not doing a favor to him by obeying him. No, Jesus rules as king whether you and I acknowledge him as king or not. He is king whether we like it or not. It's like gravity. You can, you can deny it, but you're going to feel its, its rule over your life when you jump off that building. Friends, that means if you and I try to live as if God is not really a king, he's more like an advisor who makes suggestions, not commands. If we live with God in that type of a relationship like Reuben, we will become like Reuben unstable as water. Living as if we're in charge will leave us desperate, trying to scrounge together the life that has spilled because the cup has been gone. I wonder if life feels like that for you because you've pushed God to the margins. Your life is spilled out and you're trying to scrape it together. It doesn't have to be that way. Water cannot stand up without a cup. It's a reminder that we were made by God for God. We need a king. We're made to submit to a king. You and I are not made to be kings and queens above him. We need a king. And the good news of Christmas is Jesus has come and he is the king. But again, the problem is, we we can say hallelujah, amen, he is the king, and that's a good thing to say amen to, but the problem is that you and I have sinned against this king, and our rebellion against the king is no trivial matter of indifference. He'll just overlook it. No, it doesn't work that way. The Bible is very clear that our sin leaves us in a position of being an enemy of the king an enemy of our creator. Now just pause and let that sink in for a little bit. Having God as your enemy. 
we fast forward to the last book of the Bible, Revelation 5, verse 5, we see this image of the king being Jesus as a lion. Revelation 5, 5 says that Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He has conquered. So the Bible ends with Jesus being the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, victorious. He conquers who? His enemies. Now, if you and I go to the zoo, it's, it's fascinating to view a lion from behind the zoo's guardrail. But it's terrifying to fall into the pen with that lion. The lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus, is not indifferent to sin. He hates dishonesty, greed, partiality, selfish ambition. He hates injustice. He hates all evil and all wickedness. And Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah who conquers his enemies. That's true. And yet the good news is that Jesus is an extraordinary king. Because not only is he the lion of the tribe of Judah, if you keep reading in the next verse in Revelation 5, verse 6, he's also the lamb who was slain. What an extraordinary king. He is both the conquering lion who you dare not rouse. And he is the lamb that was slain. He is a just king who hates wickedness and he is a merciful king who willingly laid down his life on the cross, the sinless son of God, in our place for our sin, for our redemption. Now having heard some of the tough words that Jacob has issued for Reuben or Simeon or Levi, we might think, okay, How is it that they are blessed? Because we know that verse 28 says that he's blessing all 12 sons, right? Look at verse 28. He says, in verse 28, he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable for him. So even even the hard words that he has for Reuben and Simeon and Levi, Jacob says are a blessing. Moses says they're a blessing. And they're a blessing that is suitable, appropriate for them. His tough words about their future warn us and them that sin, even forgiven sin, has consequences. God is not mocked. We will reap what we sow. But this hard, these hard words for the wicked in chapter 49 are also a loving warning to the sons of Jacob and to us. A loving warning to wake up. Because if we turn from our sin now, while the opportunity to receive God's blessing is still available and the door is not shut yet, if they hear the tough words of Jacob and repent, then those tough words will become a blessing, a blessing suitable for them. Friends, if you're not yet a Christian, the same is true for you and me. Today is the day of salvation. Today the door is open to receive God's blessing. It all depends on what you do with Jesus as the king. If you persist in sin and saying, ah, I'm gonna do what I want. I don't need him yet. If you persist in your sin and pride, you will perish. You will suffer the wrath of God. But if you turn from your sin today, if you repent, if you bend your knee to King Jesus and you trust in him alone as your king and as your leader and as your savior, you will not perish, you will live, and you will live eternally. That is the promise of God. I pray that you do that today. Today is the day of salvation. Now I want us to imagine the first audience of Genesis 49. They would have likely been the Israelites, who were wandering in the wilderness before they went into the promised land, or the Israelites who were suffering in exile after their disobedience to God, whether in Assyria or Babylon. 
whoever it was, these first readers, the Israelites, who likely, they, they, would, they would know which tribe they were from. As they heard Jacob's specific word for each tribe, they would see what Jacob said to each of the sons in their history. At each point, they could nod their head and say, yeah, we've lived long enough and, and we can see what Jacob said. And yep, it happened. Yep, yep, yep. Just as God said it would to Zebulun and Dan and Asher and Benjamin. In other words, what God said would happen happened. God is faithful. And God's faithfulness is the point, friends. In the days to come, God will do exactly as he has said to us in his word. So what does this mean for us then? Well, before we close, look at Jacob's words in verse 18. Kind of a random verse. He's he's talking about these blessings, and then in verse 18, he kind of pauses and interjects this. I will wait for your salvation, O Lord. Hold on. He's in Egypt. He was going to die in the promised land. Joseph came and was the savior of all these people. Have they not experienced God's salvation from the famine in Egypt? Yes. But as he looked at the challenges of the days to come for his sons and the people of God in the days to come, there was yet a need for a greater and a future salvation. And for this salvation, Jacob the prophet says, I will wait for your salvation, O Lord. In hope. Friends, if you're a Christian this morning, you have past tense experienced God's salvation. You are presently living in his salvation. But this side of heaven, we like Jacob also wait in hope for the completion of our salvation. This is not the best it's going to get. <laughs> the world still groans under the curse of sin. But Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, he's going to lift that curse. And then our salvation will be complete. So with that in mind, and with that hope in mind, let me just close with four applications, four things to take away from Genesis 49. Number one, don't give up. Keep going. Church, keep going. Don't give up even if your life is a mess. As we walked with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the sons of Jacob through Genesis, we have seen a sinful mess, right? They've been a dysfunctional family. And so when we look at their past, their past is marred with sinful failure. And when Jacob looks ahead, their future is, is not much more flattering, right? The tribe of Dan is compared to a snake. Gad is referred to as a raider. Benjamin is described as a ravenous wolf. Tough past, not a very flattering future. And yet, this is the family of God that God has chosen and would use to bring a blessing to all the nations that we are living in right now. Here's the point. Because God redeems the mess, we don't need to lose hope. So don't give up. Keep going, church. Number two, don't panic. Don't panic. Why? Because Jesus sits on the throne. This is not an election. This is not, I hope he becomes king. He is presently ruling as king of kings and lord of lords. And Joseph's life testifies how a sovereign God is able to overrule what was intended for evil and use it for good. Jesus is the ruler of the tribe of Judah that verse 10 spoke about. And there's no term limit for him. Verse 10 says, the scepter shall not depart from his hands. He's in charge, and so we hope in his rule and reign, no matter what happens. So don't give up. Number two, don't panic. Number three, ditch the lesser hopes for hope in Christ. Ditch the lesser hopes that you have and exchange it for the greater hope that is in Christ. Listen, you might say, well, I don't know, I don't know if I need Genesis 49. I, I have hope. I'm a hopeful person. Okay, great. But if your hope is in your bank account or your accomplishments or your abilities or the next politician or your, your, your kind of go-to personality or whatever it is you're hoping in, that hope is like thin ice. It might, hold you, it might look like it's going to hold you up for a little bit, but it will crack. And your life will go into the 
depths if the right circumstances push on those hopes. There's only one hope that will hold us up. It's not anything else, it's Jesus. And so if we're religious, we can kind of fly under the radar. We might not, we might not even know that we have other lesser hopes. So one of the things to do is just ask God this week to search your heart. And if you are trusting in a lesser hope than God or his word, that ask God to reveal that to you. And then turn from that lesser hope and put all of your hope on Christ because Jesus is the hope who will not disappoint you. Don't give up, don't panic, ditch the lesser hopes. Number four, last application, let God's love strengthen your hope. When suffering leaves you weary and tired, ready to throw in the towel, when it's hard to hope because God seems like he is against you, you ever feel that way? Yeah, Christians feel that way at times. But don't listen to your circumstances, don't listen to your feelings. Listen to the authoritative, true, unfailing word of God. Look to the cross where Jesus demonstrates his love for you. Brothers and sisters, the cross of Christ and his willingness to lay down his life for you and the Father's willingness to give up his only son for our salvation proves once and for all, puts a stake in the ground, the question is over, about God's heart toward you. He's not against you. No matter what your circumstances might say, no matter what your feelings may say, if you're in Christ, he's not against you. He is for you. How do I know that? Because he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things that we need for life and for godliness? He's already gone as, a, he's already gone as far as he can to show you his heart by giving his son. If he's given you his son, then you can know he's not against you. He's for you. So let his love for you strengthen your hope. And we can able, in that sense, when we have that strengthened hope, we can say with Jacob in verse 18, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. This gospel hope that we see in Genesis 49 enables us not only to sing with longing, Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, this world is broken. This gospel hope also fuels us and gives us the confident ability to say the refrain of the song, rejoice. I rejoice. Emmanuel shall come again to us with dwell, to dwell. And when he comes, as he has promised, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And I guarantee you, by the authority of God's word, you will not be ashamed for hoping in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for King Jesus. Lord, we were made for you, by you, and we praise you that though our sin has once separated us from you, that you have made a way for us to be made right and reconciled to you. And so we give you thanks and praise for that today. In Jesus' precious name, amen.